listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens, and joining me today to discuss the blackouts in California is Tom Tanton. Tom is the Director of Science and Technology Assessment for E&E Legal. He's also the president of T-Squared and Associates, a firm providing services to the energy and technology industries. Tanton has 40 years of direct experience in energy technology and public policy, having been central to many of the critical legislative changes that enable technology, choice, and economic development at the state and federal level. Uh, Mr. Tanton is a strong proponent of free market environmentalism and consumer choice and frequently publishes and speaks against alarmist and reactionary policies and government failures. Until 2000, Tan was the principal policy advisor with the California Energy Commission. From 2000 to 2003, he worked as a general manager at EPRI. And from 2003 to 2007, he was a senior fellow and vice president here at the Institute for Energy Research. Tom, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for asking me, Alex. It's, It's always nice to explain to the rest of the country just what's going on in California. Yeah, that's uh, why I'm very excited to have you on today. Obviously, last week, California was hit with another wave of rolling blackouts, and energy experts have given a number of potential explanations for the causes of all this. And obviously, uh, the main thing I want to cover here today is uh, just your interpretation of all that. But uh, before we get into that, I think a good place to start is to just give our audience a a quick description of how California's electricity market is sort of structured, how all these different entities sort of operate in the space, you know, who's responsible for procurement, uh, what's the responsibility of the ISO. California has a number of community choice aggregators. What role do they play in the whole process? So uh, basically, for people who aren't from the state, could you just give us a sense of how California's electricity market is structured? Well, I, I don't know if structure is the right term to use because that implies there's some logical formulation of it. But basically, it's made up of large companies and small companies, some of whom are generators, uh, some of whom are uh, demand aggregators. You mentioned the California ISO. The California ISO is basically the air traffic controller for the system. They grant access or ensure equal access to the transmission lines but the transmission lines are owned by, by the traditional utility. You also mentioned community choice um, aggregators who are typically uh, municipal um, entities that have taken over the role of procurement. They do not deliver, they do not bill, but they provide um, a choice to consumers in uh, typically green energy. So they, they're, they're more or less a broker for the customers or the group of customers. Obviously, every state sort of has its own unique set of laws and regulations around uh, energy policies. If you could provide a quick overview of California's renewable energy targets, and I know there's an emissions trading system there. Um, if you could give listeners just a sense of those sort of policies, uh, an overview of that. Yeah. The, the driving force on energy and in industry in general is referred to as AB32, supposedly a greenhouse gas or global warming solutions act. It was passed uh, a few years back. It encompasses the cap and trade program, which heavily influences uh, electricity generation. 
Uh, in 2002, there was a law passed requiring uh, or called the Renewable Portfolio Standard. It's increased over time, requires a certain percentage of the electricity be generated from a list of approved renewable sources. Many people looking at last week, blackouts, have blamed the RPS for the blackouts, largely because the uh, technologies that satisfy the RPS, the Renewable Portfolio Standard, are either intermittent or unreliable, or both. Basically, wind and solar aren't there when you need it. When you need it is when the air conditioning loads are hot. It was 105 thereabouts last week here in California. Uh, and air conditioning loads uh, go go up quite a, quite a bit. The, the other thing that uh, I should point out is it all harkens back to the crisis we had in 2000, which is called an energy crisis, but it was we never had an energy crisis in California. We had a capacity crisis. We had plenty of energy just at the wrong place in the wrong time. And that's what happened uh, last week. We ran out of capacity to satisfy the demand. If I can use an analogy, Texas has a very similar situation as California in terms of a renewable portfolio standard. But their renewable portfolio standard is based on capacity. Ours is based on energy. Texas also has a capacity market, which, while it has some issues, we don't have in California. Transmission is dealt with separately from generation, and it, both are dealt with separately from demand. And what, what we see in the fractionation of our market is a little less integration of the market with the, with the consumer needs. Yeah, so you've touched on several things there. The first thing being just unreliability of renewables, and I think that gets us into a conversation about the duck curve which is uh, something that the ISO there in California has warned about for going back almost a decade now. Do you well, want to actually, yeah, actually, do you it goes, just provide it? Back, it goes back 20 years to 2000, the, oh. the warning about the duck curve. Okay, yeah, I, di I didn't realize that they had been aware of the issue for that long. The first report that I saw was like 2011 or 2012, but could you just provide an overview of what the concern has been there and what they've been warning about and how that specific issue yeah. is tied into the blackouts that they're currently experiencing. Yeah, basically, basically the issue is that supply and demand don't match up. If you imagine when consumers come home from work, they turn the air conditioning on, demand starts going up in the late afternoon, about the same time as when solar output starts dropping off. If you graph supply and demand, and look at it, it looks like a duck. That's why it's referred to as a duck curve. Demand is increasing and supply is from solar is decreasing. The supply from solar decreasing isn't a, an issue if solar is only a small part of your generation. But under the RPS, it's become increasingly a big part. And in some, some periods of time, it dominates and we have too much solar and we have to shunt it off to uh, other utilities, other states like Arizona, and we end up paying them to take it. So there's this uh, inherent mismatch between consumer demand and solar output into a, a degree wind output. Wind tends to blow hardest here in California at night when demand is very low. But it's, uh, but it's always been an issue of dependable on-peak capacity. You know, solar's fine, but 
in in a, in a matches on peak pretty good, uh, at least better than win. But it, it tapers off just as people are, are getting home and demanding air conditioning. Gotcha. Something I've seen a few people write about is the fact that California is pretty dependent on importing a good amount of electricity from other states. Obviously, the uh, the heat wave that they're experiencing impacted the entire region. So, seen a few people suggest that you know part of the problem has been that electricity that is usually imported wasn't available because it was going to serve the needs of. Uh, the increased demand because of the heat wave in places that where it's yeah, usually they, come from. Yeah, about 25% of our power comes from out of state. It varies from time to time. Uh, but it's, it's been pretty consistent at 20, 25% for the 40 years I've been involved in this. And, and you're right, th- those other states, like say Bonneville or say Arizona, have different peak periods than, than we do. So for a large number of years, there's been uh, economy exchanges. We'd take from them when we need it, and they take back when they need it. They're, they're, Bonneville, for example, is, is, is not a summer peaking uh, area like we are. So there'd be exchanges. But anymore, as they experience growth, they, they have less available. And as you mentioned last week, they had very little available because this the heat wave affected everybody in in um, the West region, or pretty much everybody in the West region. It was it was 110 in Phoenix and, and worse, so their air conditioning is going full bore, and there wasn't a lot of power available from uh, from from Arizona Public Service at Palo Verde. So what's what's happening? And, it, and it's going to get worse. But if you don't have power to import, all of a sudden you're looking for close to 20, 25 percent of your demand that you got to make up domestically, and we don't have that available. We don't have the generation available to do that. That's why we find ourselves increasingly at at the safety margin of keeping the grid on. Can you tie that that need to import electricity specifically to public policies that, for example, the RPS also just limitations on being able to build new uh uh, either natural gas plants or I'm pretty sure California is phasing out nuclear as well. Yes, it is. In addition to the RPS, there's there's a state law that says the utilities can no longer sign contracts for long-term power purchase from coal-fired facilities out of state. So imagine, if you will, let's say Los Angeles Department of Water and Power wants to sign a contract for supply that goes out 10, 15 years. And they and they found Four Corners power plant has some available capacity. They're not allowed to sign that as a supply because of the implications for greenhouse gas emissions. But what they what what the policymakers don't understand is the WECC Western Electric Coordinating Council is an integrated market. So Four Corners may not be sending their power to California. But they're they're still generating the same amount of power, and they're selling it to somebody else, who then sells the, the justifiable, the green energy to California, which has two effects. One is it hides the emissions, and if you're concerned about emissions, you wouldn't want that law in effect because the emissions don't change. But it ends up selling the more expensive stuff to California, 
and I'm, I'm waiting for the day when people will start to realize this is affecting the West region. This is affecting the wholesale market. And where the hell is FERC? And it's obviously reflected in uh, just electricity prices in the state. California is one of the highest. I think maybe Hawaii might have higher electricity prices, but obviously that's something that's reflected in hurting consumers in the, in the state. Right. It, it does. And when, when we first under, started to undertake restructuring back in 1998, we noticed that California's electricity rates to both residential consumers and industrial consumers uh, was 50% higher than the national average and double our neighbors our neighbors being Arizona and Nevada and Oregon. So at, at that time, we had noticed what can be best referred to as business flight, businesses that were heavy energy consumers, heavily intensive energy consumers, electricity consumers, were starting to leave the state. And we're, we're losing some of our manufacturing infrastructure. And now it's, affecting resident, now it's affecting residential consumers as well. We know that there's population flight from the state as well, maybe right. going back the past right. decade or so, hasn't California lost like a million or so residents or it's some crazy number like that? Yeah, it's it's, it's increasing. Although that's not entirely due to uh, electricity rates, but it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get worse. I mean, here we are having trouble balancing supply with demand and California is embarking on a, call it a meta policy to electrify everything, electrified houses, electrified cars, electrified buildings, electrify everything. Even dump trucks have to be, you know, sooner or later will be electrified. Well, that's going to cost the state trillions, literally trillions. The bad news is that policy is being picked up by by the states, uh, by other states, and it's going to go national. And it, it doesn't make sense from an energy perspective. Just think of, of your water heater in your house. You know, if you've got natural gas, it, it, it doesn't cost you a third as much as if you if you have an electric water heater. Yeah, you sort of read my mind there. I was uh, about to ask you about the push towards electrification and, uh, and and then implications for other states that are pursuing these policies. You know, I, I, I guess the question is, ideally, what would reform have to look like in California? But then, obviously, there's just these enormous political constraints in the state. So taking that, you know, for granted, what does a realistic path forward look like for California? Um, is there one at this point? Well, Alex, you, you, you touched on a subject that is um, a daily concern of mine. There are some days when I think, well, just, just give up. You know, it's been 40 years. You haven't made any difference yet. And then there's other times when I think to myself, this is my native state. I was born here. I was raised here. It's beautiful. And I'm not going to let it go down the drain. So it's a, it's a daily challenge to, to figure out what needs to be done. What I think does not need to be done is perpetuate the technology versus technology dueling banjos argument. Much of what we saw last week after the blackouts was, well, it's so-and-so's fault, so-and-so being a technology. Well, it's wind's fault, it's natural gas fault, it's, you know, whatever. Or the result of individual policies like the RPS. Two things need to happen. One is the energy policy needs to be better integrated with other policy, and other policy needs to be clearer in its understanding of its impact on the energy. Energy is, you know, a, a 
factor of production, and without it, we cease to produce. The other thing we need to do is recognize that we became the world's most wealthy nation by constantly improving productivity. Now many of the policies are taking us backwards and reducing productivity. That's not good. We need to integrate. We need to look at the structure, conduct, and performance of the industry and the industry players, and look at how the incentives for behavior are mismatched with what's on the ground. Now that's that's a big esoteric problem to match, but here's here's an example. We're in the process of dismantling dams in California to allow the rivers to run free. Well, many of those dams are dual function dams. They do water storage and, and flood protection, but they also do hydroelectric generation. If we get rid of those dams, that reduces our hydroelectric generation just at the time when we really need it, i.e. last week, you know, in the, in the heat of summertime. So we need to look more holistically at energy policy, environmental policy, economic development policy, do a better job of matching incentives with behaviors. Yeah, there's always seems to be a recurring problem in energy and I would say environmental policy too, where policies are often set with targets on very long timelines and the lag between when a policy goes in place and then when you start to see the effects of it isn't necessarily instantaneous, right? So it takes time well, well, for for the problems that you know a, a problematic policy might cause to sort of emerge in the system. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and that's that's because the politicians realize they don't want the shit hitting the fan when they're still in office. They want to just talk about the good part of the policy and let let the, the bad stuff happen, you know, after they're retired. But what we're seeing today is the result of, of decisions that were made back in 1995-98 time period. And and those guys, you know, are retired for the most part. But you know, they'll, they'll, you will always hear, you know, unplanned errors. There's unexpected errors, unexpected changes. They're unexpected or undesired, but they're not unanticipated. They were warned about this 20 years ago. They were warned about this 10 years ago. They were warned about this last year. And what did they do? They continued obsessive prioritization of greenhouse gas emission reductions at the expense of everything else. There's no recognition of reliability. There's no recognition of affordability. The California Constitution says that the responsibility of the California Public Utilities Commission for regulated utilities is to ensure affordability and reliability. And they have failed at both of those tasks. The reason they failed at both of those tasks is they have become captured by the greenhouse gas emission reduction policy priority certainly gets to just the broader point that incentives and politics don't usually align with what consumers and producers are looking for in their market interaction. That's true. And, and what you see is when the incentives don't match what's right, however you decide that, what is the typical response? The typical response is to add more incentives, more tax credits, more subsidies, more whatever, rather than peeling the onion back to the core. If we remove those incentives that are distorting, maybe we'll get back to where we need to be. But hell be it for anybody to recommend getting rid of subsidies or getting rid of incentives or getting rid of anything. It's always let's add some more. 
seems to be a lot of parallels between California and just yesterday I recorded a podcast with uh, a gentleman from Germany and the topic was their energy transition. And uh, one of the things that we sort of discussed was just the, the process of the beginning of a new program or intervention and that causing uh, unintended consequences. And then people, politicians and bureaucrats scrambling to then have to fix those problems. And it, and it feels like in some of these cases that those those things just spiral almost out of control. Yeah. Last thing I just want to leave on is if, if that is sort of an accurate story of what you see going on in California, where, if anywhere, can we look for some optimism, maybe in terms of pushback among energy consumers or the business community, or is there anywhere that we can look for a little bit of optimism? Well, yeah, the, the, the personality of California is one of eternal optimism. You'll see forays into fixing it um, come from the manufacturers, and then you'll see forays to fixing it coming from some group of consumers like residential consumers. So we keep seeing these little forays they they tend to get beaten down by the establishment, but more and more consumers are in both industrial, commercial, and residential are are getting fed up. And while it was uncomfortable and unfortunate that we had a blackout last week, I think it was a good thing because electricity in California and elsewhere is too successful. It's too successful when people forget about thinking about where it comes from. You plug in, you get power. Well, when you plug in and you don't have power, you wonder why. Well, you wonder why and maybe you start thinking of, of better ways of running this thing called electricity so that we don't have outages. It's it's a victim of its own success. It, you know, we read in the paper, well, it's the first set of rolling blackouts in 20 years. Well, yeah, but last year we had what we refer to as PSPS, public safety power shutoffs, which is intended to keep the, the transmission lines from blowing down and starting fires. They de-energize them. Well, th there's an outage you have for two or three, four days because the winds pick up a certain, you know, during the fire season. Something needs to change, and the first thing that needs to change is paying more attention to the transmission network and less attention to the generation sources and and allow other priorities to come into the uh, calculus so that we don't obsess so much on greenhouse gas emissions. What would reform look like there? Because uh, from my understanding, transmission's handled by the utilities. It's, and It's owned by, but it's controlled by the ISO. Much of the problems with uh, the transmission lines have to do with sort of the improper land management practices of uh, public land there in the state. Could you just give us uh, an overview of what what that whole other sort of separate problem looks like also? Well, um, yeah, I, there needs to be a better recognition that transmission lines are important arterials, and they, they bring the lifeblood to California's economy. They bring it from as far away as Washington State and Idaho and whatnot. Now, we back in 2000, thereabouts, I forget the precise year, we had a major blackout in California and the Western States Electricity Council. It was traced to a tree that grew fast and, and 
grew into a power line in Idaho. Well, things move pretty quickly when you're talking about the speed of light. The tree goes into the power line, the power line goes down, and next thing you know, 11 western states are out, out of power. Had And, and it, it grew fast because it was hot. Well, what comes with hot weather? Faster growing trees and higher demand for electricity. Well, higher demand for electricity means you start putting more power through the wire. You put more power through the wire, it gets a little hotter, and it sags more. So the space between the tree and the power line shrinks. Next time you fly country, across country, look down uh, when you're flying over the Midwest. You can see where the transmission lines are because it's clear-cut. There are no trees anywhere near the power line. It's a, it's a swath. Well, there needs to be a better balance between forest management and transmission line maintenance because you don't want the trees and the power lines getting close to each other. That's just one example. Another example is very often we, I don't want to say drain, but we let we release a lot of water out of the hydroelectric facilities in order to protect the delta from saltwater intrusion. We also release a lot of water so that the delta smelt can maybe recover. Well, last time they looked, there's only one delta smelt left. So maybe it's time to retain some of that water behind the dam so we can irrigate our crops and generate electricity during the, during the summer when it's hot. There's there's not a fully integrated policy mechanism nor fully integrated policy about how to manage the transmission line corridors and the hydroelectric facilities, which are only two examples of the, of the problems we face in California. Yeah, before we go, is there anything that we haven't covered here that you think our audience uh, should know about the situation in California? And, and maybe looking ahead, uh, what are you paying attention to with the blackouts and policy-wise going forward? I, I think they need to pay attention to California and, and quit dismissing us as the wackos on the left coast. And the reason is because what happens in California directly affects all those other states in the West, Washington, Arizona, Idaho, Montana, Colorado, and, and try and convince FERC to get more directly involved. Those of you who are in further away states, keep in mind that what happens in California sooner or later spreads. So don't just say, let us fall off, you know, hope for the earthquake and that we fall off into the ocean, because our stupid policies will affect you sooner or later. And it's better to get involved now than later when it's in, in your hometown. My guest today has been Tom Tanton. Tom. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Alex.